Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I'm a bit late to comment on Tobe Hooper's passing but I thought that we really should take a moment to remember him. The marking of his passing was done with the noting that he directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which does very much have a cult following and did set the tone for many films following. However, in my formative days, Poltergeist was a film that my family saw several times a year, and Mr. Hooper directed that one as well. The very premise of the story, turning the burial grounds sacred to the dead into plots for suburban homes, and through capitalistic indifference don't bother to relocate the graves, nor notify the residents. Terrific thematic basis. And following behind, the hubris of greed is the ghosts of the past to punish those that would slight the warnings of those who have come before us. Partnering that with the story that is rather generous with exposition, courtesy of Zelda Rubenstein's absolutely unforgettable Tangina. I can't get enough of Poltergeist. First George Romero, and now Hooper. Tobe Hooper, you will be missed. Let's hear some scary stories. Gordon Brown grew up in the deserts of Syria and now lives in the deserts of Nevada. Since his arrival in the New World, his work has appeared or is forthcoming in Dance Macabre, Weirderary, The Haunted Traveler, The Catterskill Basin Literary Journal, and Burning Water Magazine. Gordon spends his free time writing feverishly and looking after his cats, of which he has none. Listen with me to Gordon Brown's That Terrible Feeling, a Tales to Terrify original. There's that terrible feeling. 
the pressure that builds up around your gut when an elevator suddenly jolts. The quiet panic when you're just about to step off of an escalator. That empty drop when you see something, a glass, a plate, just start to fall. You tense up. You want to move, but you know there's nothing you can do to stop it. That feeling always marks it. I sit up in my bed and stare out into the darkness. If I roll over and look down over the edge, there will be horrible things waiting below. Sometimes it's a fat white lump squirming sluggishly across the carpet. Sometimes it's long, thin legs creeping out from under the frame. Sometimes it's Charles, strewn across the floor in little pieces. So I never look anymore. I lay there and I stare up at the ceiling and try not to let my mind wander. But it does. And there's that terrible feeling. When we were given the go-ahead, everyone but the PR department celebrated. They stayed up through the night, writing answers to the thousands of questions, demands, and pleas we were going to get. People would want to know if we were going to stop the Holocaust, kill Hitler, kill Stalin, kill Columbus, save Gandhi or Martin Luther King, if we could stop Vietnam, if we could win Vietnam. Those ones would be easy. It was the others they were worried about. Could you save my son? Could you keep that woman from getting into her car that night? My dog, she's all I had. I never had a chance to know my dad. She was the one, I just know it. I know it's asking a lot, but please, if you could send me back for one day, one hour, one minute. It doesn't work like that. It's not what this was built for. Understand, Hattie would tell us, that what's done is done, and what's coming can't be averted. There is no butterfly effect. But people wouldn't believe that. Arrogant little things like us like to imagine something so small as a butterfly fluttering its wings can cause hurricane winds on the other side of the world. Maybe they can, but those winds will die, and the butterfly too, and the world will keep spinning through the big black nothing, same as before, same as always. Grandma and Grandpa are dust mites on the fabric of time. Try putting that in a press release. Just before we left, they said they were onto something. Bring up the grand scale. Tell people that the only changes really worth making would take centuries to implement. Millennia, maybe. 
Think of this as a telescope, one for looking thousands of years into the future. We had dug it into the side of a mountain. We needed a landmark. We needed somewhere that wasn't going to get buried or built over or have a forest grow through it or an ocean wash over it. An elevator shaft shot up through 100,000 feet of granite to the surface. The morning we got there, the engineer was having trouble with it. We joked that it was okay and they had 500 years to fix it. Charles joked that they'd better not have screwed up the tacky amber too. It'd be just our luck. We took bets the afternoon of the fall. Two to one, the country would still be there. Four to one, they'd still know who Elvis was. Eight to one, they'd worship us as gods. We had steak and potatoes. Someone in the State Department had got us a Chateau Lafitte 1865. There was a note that made us promise to pick up a couple bottles if we ever got to go backwards instead of forwards. They didn't let us drink any of it. Told us we were most likely going to throw it up after we got there. They said they'd save it for us, that they'd try to save it for us. No promises. Everyone laughed. That evening, the masks went on. Three to one, the air is toxic. Charles had the cameras. Hattie was given the rations. They gave me the sample bags. We stayed up joking and talking until they came for us at eleven. We marched down to the hall and into the room at the bottom of the shaft, strapped into our chairs, watched the doors hiss shut listened as they sealed. For the next hour, we sat in the tacky amber without saying anything. And then that terrible feeling. I watched Hattie disintegrate in front of me, melt away like that painting with the clocks. And that feeling, like the elevator was lurching to a stop, like the bottom of the escalator was coming up fast. Like there was something just starting to tumble off a table at the far end of the room. I could feel Charles fading away next to me, but I couldn't turn my head. I couldn't move at all. When I could, it was dark. Completely dark. There was a loud, hollow click and I saw Hattie silhouetted by the flashlight. I wrestled with the clasps of my harness in the dark before they unbuckled. The doors swung open, and we all stumbled out. It was still pitch black as we scrambled up the hallway to the elevator. The shaft slowly buzzed to life when Charles pressed his hand onto the pad set in the wall. The elevator groaned on the way up. Charles looked pale and nauseous, but he still joked about it being half a millennium later and still out of order. We all tried to laugh, but couldn't quite. We waited quietly for the sound of the box locking into place. The doors hissed open, and we cautiously crept out. 
It was still dark, but we could see the jagged edge of the mountain contrasting against the deeper black of the cloudy night sky. Charles motioned that we could take off our helmets. The wind was coming down off the mountains. We walked through the darkness down the street. It was still there, even though the asphalt where the parking lot had been was pitted and cracked. There had been a town five centuries ago near the base. Hattie used to buy her cigars at the gas station and sing karaoke in the little biker bar. Two to one, it had become the heart of some great empire. We made good time down the side of the mountain. Ten minutes, fifteen tops. Still in the darkness. All the way down, there was this smell. A dry, musty smell, wafting up from below. We weren't far from the base when we saw the shadows of buildings when the moonlight filtered through a crack in the clouds. The closer we got, the stronger the smell became. Our feet were beginning to stick now. We were wading through what appeared to be a fine white mist spread out across the ground. It shifted around our boots nervously but not along with the breeze. I couldn't remember the odds we had for global warming. It couldn't have been a second later that a blast of hot wind came down off the mountain. The clouds parted and the full light of the moon came streaming down. Oh, that terrible feeling. The ground we stood on was moving shifting, writhing as millions of spiders skittered over the silent earth. The town was in ruins, covered in cobwebs. From the twisted chunks of metal and concrete, we could see egg sacks the size of tool sheds. Thick, white cocoons were swaying listlessly from the ends of street lamps. I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me, told myself that they were, but out in the distance I saw what I first thought could only be the silhouettes of trees. But these things moved through the streets, towering over the houses on their eight legs. Hattie started to scream. I never ran so fast in my life, and never will again. My lungs were on fire, and my stomach was full of knives by the time I reached the elevator doors. Charles was a second behind me. Hattie wasn't. I think I paused. I like to think I paused. Just for a minute to wait for her before Charles rammed me through the doorway. We sprinted down the hallway, and I swear I could hear the unnoise of feet swarming fast behind us. I hammered the controls, waiting for the hiss of the doors unsealing. A few yards behind me, I heard something hit the floor hard, followed by a sound I didn't know humans could make. I felt the spray of something hot across the back of my neck. 
The doors opened and I tumbled inside, slamming them shut behind me. There was a lifeless click and they sealed shut. I was on the ground, tearing at my clothes and shaking my hair. Five, the size of golf balls, spilled out and desperately tried squirming up the walls before my foot came down. All night I sat there, sweating in the oppressive heat and dark. Every time a stray hair brushed against me, I'd flail on the ground. I don't know how long I was in there. Minutes? Days? I could still hear them in the walls, up on the ceiling, under the floor. This is what hell feels like. And that terrible feeling, and the world melted away in front of me. I think they took me to the emergency room when I got back. I remember suddenly being surrounded by men in hazmat suits. That terrible feeling came and went all day. I think I remember the program director standing at the foot of my bed. I think she asked where Hattie and Charles were. I think I cried. She asked me what I saw, and I told her. She says that it wasn't possible. I tried to ramble something about evolution, oxygen and nitrogen ratios in the atmosphere, something. She wouldn't listen. I must be wrong, she said. I had to be wrong. That terrible feeling. She said it wasn't 500 years ahead that they had sent us. They had made a mistake. We came out too early. Far too early. We only went ahead five days. That was four days ago. I've been in this bed since. They sent in a psychologist and a specialist. They took away my belt, my shoelaces, my razors, my mirror. They've got cameras in my room in case I try again. I hear something. Some unsound just outside my window. And I have that terrible feeling. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That was Gordon Brown's That Terrible Feeling, as read by our own Drew Sebastini. Writer and designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator, Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day, he spends stories with words and pictures as an advertising copywriter and creative director. But by the light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbly brews with hops and barley. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, with his wife, son, and a menagerie of small creatures. Discover more about Drew at www.idrewthis.ca. Of course, link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Drew. Our second story of the night comes to us from Mike Chin. Mike Chin lives in Birmingham, UK, with his wife, Caroline, and their tribe of guinea pigs. In 2012, he took early retirement so he can spend more time writing. Over the years, he has published over 60 short stories, as well as editing three volumes of The Alchemy Press Book of Pulp Heroes and Swords Against the Millennium, also from Alchemy Press. His own contribution to the pulp adventure genre, The Paladin Mandates, garnered two nominations for the British Fantasy Award in 1999. In 2015, his Sherlock Holmes steampunk mashup, Vallis Timoris from Fringeworks, sent the famous detective to the moon. He has two collections of short stories in print, Give Me These Moments Back, printed in 2015 from the Alchemy Press, and Radix Omnium Malum from 2017 Parallel Universe Publications. Children of the Night, settle in and listen with me to Mike Chin's Cold Rain. The empty Chinese takeaway had been firebombed. Some of the boards were ripped down, and now a hole yawned black and scorched in what was once a window. The recycling bins were upended, dribbling a grey stream of garbage across the street. A slogan was daubed on the filthy wood, but fire and the dull rain had smeared the sentiments. Adam couldn't read whatever justification the firebombs had left. Hunching against the weather, he limped along the brown streets and grey structures. His building was no different from any other, just another many-storied decaying behemoth looming out of the dank. After a week, he was still finding it hard to identify. He groped in damp pockets for his key, just about to unlock the peeling front doors when he heard a muffled sound close by. It was a tramp, huddled against the narrow steps. His face was streaked with grime, water dripped off his nose and long ratty hair. On impulse, 
Adam searched his pockets, producing a crushed pack of cigarettes and book of matches, both cold and damp. There were only two cigarettes left. Adam had more up in his flat, dry ones. He tossed pack and matches towards the tramp, opening the front door and blundering into the comparative dry. He slammed the door shut on any words of thanks. Inside it was dark. The absentee landlord still hadn't replaced any of the dead light bulbs along the hallway, corridors, or stairwell. Every day it grew dimmer. The uniformity of all six floors augmented by the creeping darkness. The only light filtered in from the wet, gloomy street. It was like trying to see through a dirty mist. He had no idea how many others lived in the converted house. He'd never seen anyone. In the intensifying gloom... It was unlikely he ever would. Adam climbed the ancient stairs to the third floor. He was beginning to shiver. The building was always several degrees colder than outside. He hadn't been able to dry out his coat properly since he'd moved in. Outside his flat, he had to hold his keys inches from his face to identify the right one. At least, inside, all the lights worked. He bought plenty of bulbs himself when he'd moved in. He flicked on several lights, reveling in the brightness, careless of the electricity bill. The chaos it revealed was familiar, a cityscape in miniature of crates, boxes, and crazily piled books. He'd get around to sorting it all eventually. While the oven was heating up, Adam raised the sash window, dug out the fresh pack of cigarettes, and lit up. He sat on an as-yet-unpacked tea-chest. Watched the rain falling in the anonymous street, flicked spent ash through the window, finally tossing the dog end outside to dissolve in the gutter. He heated a tray of frozen lasagna and ate in silence, staring at the blind television screen. It had died last night, halfway through a commercial break, and he couldn't afford a new one. Once he'd finished, he grabbed his damp coat and left the flat. The unpacking could wait another night. He fancied a drink down the pub. On the way out, he dumped his empty lasagna tray in one of the bins lining the entrance hall. The George was a dismal place, as forlorn outside as it was inside, and all but deserted. Apart from Adam and the barman, there were only three others, all huddled in a dim corner nursing half-emptied glasses, staring into space. They weren't talking. Adam bought a pint and made for a corner of his own. The plastic bench felt sticky and smelled of stale beer. The brown walls were dotted by faded prints of boxers and football teams Adam didn't recognise. He sipped at his drink. It tasted watered down. He went back to the bar and bought a whiskey, a double, Back in his corner, he emptied the scotch into his pint and took another taste. Better. He stared around the desolate pub. There was a paler patch up on the wall opposite that was about the right size for a widescreen TV. The three in the other corner were still gazing at nothing, though Adam couldn't shake the feeling that they were secretly watching him. Keep an eye on me, pint, he called to the barman. The man made no sign he'd heard, or cared. Adam stood and went out through the pub's door into the rain. 
The doorway didn't offer much shelter, just a tiny brick porch. He huddled under it, feeling a fine spray drift in from the rain, and smoked two cigarettes before going back. It was as if time had frozen whilst he was outside, like a tableau, nothing and no one had moved. He gave up on the weak beer after that and went on to shorts. The cheap scotch was better than the cheap bitter, but it left him feeling hollow and nauseous. The walk back from the pub was a slideshow of fragmented images, sooty brick, slick roads, graffiti on every corner. The tramp was still crumpled by the steps when Adam made it home. If it hadn't been for the crushed cigarette pack and matchbook squeezed in his gnarled fingers, it wouldn't have looked as if he'd moved. Adam woke up sometime in the night and went for a piss. He cracked the window again and lit up a cigarette. The rain had stopped, leaving the street to glow in the fluorescent lights. Opposite, the buildings were a homogenous smear against a bruised sky. Once he'd finished the cigarette, he threw it away, but he couldn't close the window. It was jammed, woodwork swollen by the damp, most likely. Adam left it. The night air was warmer than his flat. Cold air condensed to intricate phantoms as it escaped into the street mimicking the earlier cigarette smoke. He crawled back into bed. Before he made it back to sleep, a slow, rhythmic pounding started up somewhere. A muffled voice joined in, crying out noises that wanted to be words, keeping pace with every bang. They counted him down to sleep, matching his heartbeat for beat. When he left in the morning, Adam noticed the old tramp wasn't hanging around by the steps any longer. Moved on, he guessed. Even though the rain had paused, the sky was a grim monotone. Everywhere looked like an underdeveloped black-and-white photograph. Adam's breakfast was a cigarette and fry at the local greasy spoon, its faltering neon and thick smells filling the street with overheated garish colour. The food was tasteless and looked worse, but it was filling, and it hadn't made him sick yet. The huge cook's face and hair gleamed as though he'd been dipped in his own cooking oil. At work, Adam settled into his cramped workstation and logged his computer onto the system. There was no shortage of light here. The ceiling was a checkerboard of opaque panels through which sterile fluorescence bleached Adam and every other worker at their identical cubicles. During a break, Brenda came over. She nudged his keyboard aside with the backside Adam so admired and sat on the desktop. She offered him a sandwich from a plastic tray. All right, if I come around tonight, she asked. He leaned back in his chair. You sure? The flat isn't much to look at yet. Can't be any worse than our place. Think Mum's given up on it. Okay. He took the sandwich and bit into it. All he could taste was the cheap mayonnaise. Walk back with me? See you then. She slid off the desk with an unnecessary wriggle and tottered back to her own workstation. Adam realised he was smiling. They'd undressed and jumped into bed quickly. Even though the window had fallen shut, the flat was still chilly. 
They made love urgently at first, simply desperate for each other's warmth. But later, Adam was slow and tender, not wanting it to end. Brenda wouldn't be staying the night, and he was in no hurry for her to leave. "'Your bed isn't half noisy,' Brenda said, snuggling up to him. Her breath was musky. "'I hope your walls aren't too thin.' Adam thought back to the night before. "'They've got nothing to complain about.' Later, she got up and dug a cigarette out of her bag. She lit up and made for the window. In the dim light, he admired the way her naked body swayed through his obstacle course of unpacking. She tried opening the window, but it had stuck again. Oh, well, she shrugged and exhaled a huge cloud of smoke. Adam sat up. I don't like to... He began. Hmm? Brenda was staring out the dark window. You never said this road was so busy. Adam had never seen a soul out at this time of night. Not Friday night, is it? Or Saturday? She looked back at him and laughed. Don't be daft. She stubbed a cigarette out on the frame and joined him back in bed. I'm cold again. When Adam woke in the morning, Brenda was gone. At least she'd waited for him to fall asleep before she left. He hated farewells, never sure what he was expected to say. Most of his clothes were still in cases somewhere, and damp, so he dressed in the same shirt as yesterday. It couldn't be any more creased. His coat smelled of Brenda, and he was smiling again as he left the flat and locked the door. The corridor was in almost total darkness, all of the bombs were out now. The only light was a trickle escaping through a filthy window at the far end of the corridor. Adam seriously considered buying a torch, just so he could find the keyhole tonight. As he made his way towards the stairs, he heard a dull thump behind him. He glanced back. For a moment he saw a figure. In the corridor, a vague shape, the same colour as the shadows. Then a black flutter dived past the dirty window, a pigeon probably, and he laughed self-consciously. Bloody birds, rats with feathers. The rain was back, a fine drizzle that Adam couldn't see, but by the time he reached the greasy spoon cafe, he was soaked through. Better yet, the place was closed, boarded up and dark. The air was clean of overheated fat and fizzing neon. The recycling bins that had been parked neatly by the door were gone. He found it hard to believe that he'd been there only yesterday. The place looked like it had been shut forever. He'd have to beg one of Brenda's tasteless sandwiches for breakfast. She didn't turn up for work. Adam asked around, but no one had heard anything. No messages from Brenda or her mother. During lunchtime, Adam tried ringing but all he got was a number unobtainable tone. He stood outside, his lunch consisting of a chain of cigarettes, fretting. If something was wrong, her mother would have called, surely. He could barely concentrate all afternoon. The harsh lights and cigarettes had given him a blinding headache. When he left, he headed straight for the George. He ordered a pint and chaser and ate an aging meat pie from a glass-fronted cabinet, the same three men were in the corner, their glasses no fuller or emptier. After another bitter and short, he left the pub.
Darkness had already fallen, a grimy, damp gloom that was almost palpable. Adam walked back to his flat unsteadily. The headache threatened to rupture his skull. The meat pie sat in his guts like an acid stone. The sodium lamps flashed on and off, waiting for him to come into range before flickering out, stuttering back to life once he was past. He was groping in a perpetual twilight, and in the blackness beyond the yellow light, shadows flowed from the anonymous buildings, clotting into masses that grew and reared. Adam reached the steps up to his building. A moment later his stomach rebelled, and he threw up into the damp street. A sour waft of beer, scotch, and bad meat rose up past him. Tears momentarily blurred the steps into broken teeth. He straightened, spat the bitter taste from his mouth, blinked his eyes clear, and glanced behind him. The street was empty and calm, sodium light picking out every shadow and relentless razor-edged detail. Groping up the lightless stair and corridor, Adam found his flat and opened the door. Something flopped over in the darkness outside. He flicked on his lights and slammed the door shut. There was a soft, tentative thud against the door. Adam ignored it. He found his way to the sink, ran the cold tap and shoved his head under it. After a few moments, he turned the tap off and stepped away. He made his way towards his bed, passing the window. Although he tried not to look, outside he saw circular shadows like huge black smoke rings, beyond the pools of sodium light, slowly contracting. His building was at their centre. Something flopped against the door again, something large and heavy but unpleasantly soft. Adam grabbed his matches, took a handful and lit all of them. Holding the miniature torch up, he yanked the door open. There was nothing outside. He looked towards the stairs, nothing. And up towards the window that was invisible in the darkness, still nothing. Then he saw a movement against the opposite wall. A shifting. From the rolling shadows cast by the matches, a thicker shadow emerged. It spread across the corridor, cut out figures made of smoke and tar and oil, linked to each other and the walls by stubby arms. Nodding misshapen heads quivered in the uncertain light, creating faces Adam knew weren't really there. Faces burning with fear and hatred, faces he'd never seen before. Faces he knew. The matches burned his fingers and he dropped them. The darkness swallowed the corridor again. But not before he thought he saw the tramp's nicotine-yellow features. And Brenda's. Adam ran back into his flat, slammed and locked the door behind him. He stumbled around the room, tripping over his unpacked mess, flicking on every light he had. He dug out his cigarettes somehow lighting one with a match that wouldn't stay still. Outside, the thumping grew louder, more insistent, finding its rhythm. A voice joined in, muffled, wordless, full of impotent rage.
That was Mike Chin's Cold Rain, originally published in Morpheus Tales Urban Horror Special 2011, as read by Ron John. Ron John has written and published children's books, scripts and screenplays for animation and live action, written musical lyrics and libretti. He is a student of strange phenomena in parapsychology, horror, and children's literature. You can see Ron John's videos and hear more of his work on the Spectre Collector blog, and that's thespectrecollector.blogspot.com.au. You can download his albums on the Spectre Collector Bandcamp site, thespectrecollector.bandcamp.com, and you can also check out Ron John's Hymns to the Cannibal Blood Cult, the Fungus Sanguinarius at the Fruits of Madness blog, thefruitsofmadness.blogspot.com.au, Links to all of those will be in the show notes. Thank you, Ron John. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.